Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and as last month, we're recording this remotely, so please note that it might impact on the sound quality. In this episode, we're discussing how consumer insights and behavioural economics can influence both regulation and firms' approaches to compliance and performance. I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Group, an insight consultant from PwC Research, and Patrick Welsh, a behavioural scientist focused on the future of work. First of all, Patrick, can you tell us a bit about the links between behavioural science and regulation? Uh, I've certainly seen a lot of regulatory approaches that try to nudge us towards particular actions or outcomes in my career, thinking about things like um, auto-enrolment into pensions, um, impact of, of opting in versus opting out on products, um, people being encouraged to switch providers. I certainly think some of those have been more successful than others. Generally, I seem to think in financial services that consumer behaviour could be quite difficult to change. I guess I, like many people, are guilty of sticking with my same bank account for many years. So what does that actually mean for regulators and their approaches? Thanks, Andrew. There's really a very clear synergy between behavioral science and regulation in a few ways. Um, I think the, the first is the ways firm implement the regulation itself. This, this often requires a deep and nuanced understanding of the behavior in order to comply. So maybe an example of this, well, vulnerable customers. Uh, the regulations are not just about trait identification of these customers, but also the behavioral patterns that, that would demonstrate vulnerability. Additionally, any customer intervention that you're gonna try and design really requires an understanding of, of behavioral science. So you don't unknowingly create a, a negative customer outcome. For instance, research shows if you provide people too much information um, and they're in a vulnerable state, that this can actually cause them to make suboptimal decisions that will end up harming them. Um, and then maybe the last consideration is on the regulatory side itself. The regulators are looking into how you better design these regulations upfront in order to encourage the right behavior. An example here is a leading regulator is looking at how you can prototype regulations with behavioral data science to then better inform the policy units when they're crafting the regulations and beginning to consider enforcement down the road. Thanks, Patrick. And certainly over my career, you're right, I can think of regulators who've moved much more to sort of evidential basis when designing policy. Uh, Sam, can you tell us a bit about how regulators use consumer research and insights to actually inform their approach? Yeah, hi, yeah, absolutely. Um... Well, we've worked with many regulators, um, both within financial services, but across other industries as well. And um, speaking to consumers is absolutely crucial for, for being able to inform regulation and, and policy making. We find that, um, I guess, regulators have access to reams of data, which is, which is very useful, really interesting. You can see some of those sort of patterns emerging and you can kind of get some sort of indication on certain behaviors but but what it doesn't give you is the is the why's it's that that human insight so what is it that's motivating those behaviors what's driving those behaviors so um as for an example um we uh we did something a study uh, there's a lot of data around about the declining use of cash so we we did a study looking at sort of trying to understand the role of that cash plays in society and uh there were a lot of 
looking at sort of the motivators and, and the barriers to using cash. And it was really interesting. We used a, a great technique called a, a deprivation technique that uh, that really helped us sort of unpick those whys. So what we did is we, quite cruel, we made those heavy cash users. Um, they weren't allowed to use cash for a week. Uh, they had to use other forms of, 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 of uh, payment. Um, and then for those light cash users, we uh, we forced them to use other payment methods. Um, obviously, this was pre-COVID, um, so we were taking a different approach now. But um, but yeah, just to, and it, what it did really well was just to help consumers articulate what is it that that drove them to use certain um, certain payment methods, and and we were able to identify sort of four typologies that then helped to sort of inform that that debate around the the future of cash. And uh, I guess linking back to what. Patrick is saying about um, uh, earlier about beh behavioural science. I think we, we use this quite a lot with regulators, um, a little, like a, like a framework that's sort of built into the design of the of the study. So it goes right through from the the, the beginning, right through to sort of analysis and and the recommendations on on how we can sort of nudge behaviour. Um, and, and we did this recently for uh, the CMA, the, the Competition and Markets Authority. Um, and that was all about sort of encouraging current account switching, um, which obviously didn't didn't work for you, Andrew, but we'll see. But we uh, we we looked at sort of potential trigger points and, and where consumers um, would be more open to switching. So we looked at what sort of behavioral biases were at play and, and where was there was that opportunity to to nudge consumers to uh, some more positive behavior. Thanks, Sam. And yeah, maybe it didn't work for me. I also I wouldn't particularly want to take part in any kind of cash studies. If I had to just use cash or not be allowed to use cash, that would be uh, quite awkward in my life, even in a COVID world. So um, I'll avoid that. Um, but it sounds I mean, the research sounds really valuable from a regulatory perspective. But I, I'm assuming that consumer research is something that, that firms can and should be using, too. Uh, I think about the, the work that I've been doing with some clients around vulnerable customers and certainly thinking about how firms understand that kind of customer base and embedding that fair treatment piece into their customer journey must be something that's very relevant for them too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we work with, with many firms, again, across FS and, 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 and other industries, but helping them to, to better understand the needs of, of vulnerable customers. And, uh, and we've seen that their approaches do vary. Um, you know, often firms will try and sort of design approaches to address certain vulnerabilities, um, where, whereas we've actually seen that a more sort of needs-based approach is, is better. So um, we've seen where, you know, potentially two people with, who are in the, the, the same situation may have a similar vulnerability, they can have completely different needs. And that's due to a number of different factors playing on that. So um, things like uh, the support network they've got available to them, maybe how financially stable they are, or, or even things like their um, financial capability. So how, how confident they are in managing their finances and understanding um, finances. So it's really important that firms do take that time to understand the needs of their customers. Um, and that can be through sort of traditional customer research, um, but we've also done other activities as well, like um, meet the customer events are, are great. It's where we get sort of um, the, the key stakeholders um, from the business up, up, up close and personal with, with, with customers. And so they can hear their experiences and hear their needs firsthand. Thanks, Sam. I, I'm thinking, yeah, certainly uh, thinking about vulnerable customers, clearly equipping frontline staff is really important. But actually also when you're thinking about some of the obligations staff have around things like the conduct rules and the senior manager regime, making sure your frontline staff are, 
uh, understand those needs it must be really important uh, i assume firms are using research to that effect completely yes i think that's the thing it's um it, it's it's using that that understanding of the needs that you get to sort of train frontline staff is is really important but i think what what we also need to be thinking about is is how you do that so how you make that engaging um so it's sort of taking it beyond those more standard online training modules that that uh, employees go through um uh, one firm i i spoke to was it, they, they had a great approach they used what they called the the dementia bus um so it was i think it was by uh, age concern provided it and it's like basically this mobile unit where um it's full of information and and, and sort of experts who who employees can throughout the day pop out and, and chat to them but um but what they also had was this sort of headgear that you put on and and it kind of i guess it's sort of disorientating um but the idea is that it helped employees sort of understand um what having dementia might be like so that's a really lovely way of of, of trying to make the training a little bit more engaging than the standard online um but i think the other thing with frontline staff is is to also remember that they 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 have a lot of experience and, and a lot of knowledge when they're they're, they're sort of interacting with these um, customers day to day, so firms need to to use them to use them to better understand how to identify how to support those that are in need and also what what staff need to to be able to support these customers. Um, we found that the kind of the most successful vulnerability strategies have been the ones where it's involved both customers and staff and so by getting that more holistic view it's sort of better Im embedded into the culture yeah and and maybe another point here is um we do see a really clear theme in addition to the frontline staff capabilities that um companies are starting to build their own behavioral science units in, in kind of a center of excellence driven model, similar to what you saw happen with robotic process automation or AI areas like that. And in fact, a few of these, these units are being led by ex-regulators, um, ex-folks from the, the policy units, the governmental policy units that exist, um, the behavioral scientists that, that help build these. So um, it's really enabling these firms to to augment the frontline staff experience and, and really start to develop a methodology where you can employ a test and learn approach um, to the way that, that you're trying to understand um, these specific problems like, like vulnerable customers or other areas. Um, these, you know, you, you we're seeing kind of two flavors um, or, or maybe a mixture of two flavors. They could be customer facing um, or they might be employee facing, focus on risk mitigation, um, behavioral risk mitigation of the employee, or, or often um, a mixture of the two as well. Yeah, that makes me think, Patrick, actually, about some of the work we did around vulnerable customers early on as well, where actually part of our thinking was around employees or firms and their own financial resilience and the impact that had on them. Uh, and I imagine that firms are also, you know, outside of financial services, even are looking at how a better understanding of behavioural science can, can impact the, their business and, and enhance their own staff's sort of well-being and performance. Can you tell us a bit about what firms are doing and, and thinking about in this space? Uh, and I guess I mean, is the pandemic also having an impact on that? Yeah, this is this is perhaps one of the most interesting areas of development in behavioural science today, um, and it's really given COVID like you pointed out, Andrew, and, and that's 
fortunate, but for tremendously unfortunate reasons. But what's happened is it started a great awakening, right? That, that work is different for everybody, as many of us have had to figure out um, how to work from home or in brand new context. We're developing new routines overnight. And so what you're starting to see the leading firms work on is how can you customize work um, to best suit the individual so that they are optimizing their, their working patterns, their well-being, their performance, but really um, with the employee in mind, with the employee's benefit in mind as a starting point. And, and this will also bring in other scientific disciplines, so things like cognitive neuroscience, um, areas like sports performance science. It, it's going to really enable us to design work to the individual because we can now measure um, what the individual wants and then how that uh, preference that they express actually helps or hurts their well-being, helps or hurts how they are uh, in terms of their peak experience at work. And so, for instance, um, are, are you in someone who does your best creative work in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening? Um, or, or maybe conversely, if, if I were to say if you were to build a, you know, deep data analytics, does that question, does the answer to the question change, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening? Um, what does being in hours and hours and hours of virtual meetings do for your cognition and stress levels? Um, the answers are different for each one of us. And, and you'll be actually able in the future, I think, to, to see the differences in those answers, not just in, into it that the answers are different, but measure. And so in the same way that customer experience has been customized for individual consumption with micro segmentation uh, and all of those types of initiatives over the last decade, I think we're now going to see the same concept emerge for the future of work where you're, you're focused on the individual's consumption of work as it, well, as it were, but really focused on how can you optimize your well-being, how can you optimize preference satisfaction, right? And, and this really needs to be done carefully and thoughtfully. Um, because of sensitivity, there's been some high-profile missteps that have happened around you know, Big Brother-esque um, uh, monitoring types of techniques. Um, and so, so I think there's some leeriness around what is being done with this. But the key question that you have to ask is, for whose benefit is this being done? Um, what are you doing with the data? Most of the questions around the path forward, they're, they're not technical in nature, but they're really ethical. They're about transparency. They're about the governance. Um, and so I think, you know, so work needs to be done to solve those. But in terms of the technological solution, feasibility, and the scientific rigor that underpins it, you know, we're there today. So it's, it's about how do we, how do we build that path forward for tomorrow? Just to add here actually um pwc research um did a, a study um recently with with patrick um it was uh with the digital our digital transformation and innovation center at carnegie mellon it's really interesting actually it was like a an online survey with employees across five different countries and what it did was sort of look at the factors which have um, an impact on on the well-being of employees in the workplace so it was, it was great because what it, it did is it showed how these factors could actually be used to to predict preferences when it came to things like work patterns, um, the benefits people get or the support that they need. Um, and, and 
ultimately it showed that you know, one size does not fit all. Um, and then we're sort of looking at some of the, the measures, we found that, that non-traditional measures, like things like personality, had a huge impact on, on people's preferences. So really, companies really need to sort of be, begin to think about like how can they effectively leverage insights from behavioural science to help build that kind of future of work for, for, that works for, for individuals. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I guess if you're thinking about a group of individuals and actually part of this must end up in a discussion about culture within organisations as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking that behavioural economics must be quite crucial to, to help create and, and maintain that kind of healthy culture. Uh, I know culture is a, a huge regulatory focus. It kind of underpins a lot of the work that we see from the FCA and the PRA as well. Um, and I'm just thinking about the current environment. I've talked to a lot of firms about the, the operational resilience type issues that stem from people working remotely uh, and how you oversee um, uh, data security and things like that. But actually, are there challenges around culture uh, and behavioural economics that, that are being escalated by having staff working remotely? Yes, definitely. Um, this is this is really an area of focus for the regulators as well. I, I think the key question that's being asked is, is there a dilution of culture through diffusion of work? And, and fields like organizational network analytics, they're beginning to allow us to measure and, and not just measure, but visualize these interaction patterns that are happening largely virtually. Um, any, any more today, we're all interacting with someone who is virtual, whether we're in the office or not. And so um, this actually is gonna give you a much deeper view of what communication patterns look like because, because you know, the, 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 the precision of the picture that you can glean because of how robust co conversations are happening uh, in a network enables you to see the, the total picture. But from this understanding of how we're interacting with each other, we'll start to be able to visualize these interaction patterns. And so, uh, for instance, the behavioral science units that I mentioned previously, this is very much uh, an area of research for them. You can take concepts that we've all heard of, like psychological safety, diversity and inclusion, um, and, and really begin to amplify these and, and not just kind of uh, qualitatively try and put them into a company, but quantitatively assess how that's happening. And, and what this will do is it'll enable a much richer understanding of culture, but not just as a theoretical and qualitative construct, but really as a living, breathing, quantitative organism. Well, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Sam. There's clearly a lot happening today, uh, lots of moving pieces that we've discussed there. Uh, a slightly difficult question to end on, but and particularly given where we are with the, the, the pandemic and with Brexit and so on. But where do you see this all evolving over the next three to five years? What, what's this going to feel like? Patrick, I'll start with you. The example I like to give is, is we all have that Tuesday. And, and that Tuesday is it's where you're in such a state of flow. You did more work than you ever thought you could have. Yeah, you you were you enjoyed every second of the day, um, but if I ask you over the next week to predict which day and or days will be that Tuesday, the vast majority of us are, are no better than guessing. And, and so, I just find that a fascinating question, right? Like we have data on 
every metric you can imagine around the, the productivity that we generate, but we don't know whether we're going to, you know, have our best day and when we're going to have our best day. So the future that I'm working today on is really where we'll have tools that are going to give us deeper understanding as to which days will be your Tuesday. But then also, you know, let's make it every day of the week, right? So I stop with just that Tuesday. Let's, let's have that Tuesday every day of the week. And, and it's really at the end of the day about empowering peak performance. Um, it's, it's the peak human experience that we all are, are striving to uh, have. And it's driven by the need for individuals, teams, companies um, in this post-pandemic world to, to successfully be able to navigate and, and perform in a completely new uh, operating model. And I guess for, for me, thinking about the vulnerability space, um, the next five years does feel quite a, quite a lot concerning, really. I guess it's it's a, it's a topic that's been on the agenda for, for years, but I guess following the pandemic, that cohort of, of vulnerable consumers will grow. And I, and I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. Um, it, it's really going to be crucial for firms to, to adopt that 360-degree view to try and speak to, to customers, um, to speak to staff, not just frontline staff, but throughout the organization, right up to exec board, and trying to link that all up together. So I've seen some firms sort of putting customers in front of the exec board. So, so doing what they can to sort of better understand the needs of, of these customers so that they can provide the, the relevant support. Well, thank you both. And Sam, uh, I think your point there was, was very well made. Patrick, I, I just hope I can have one of those Tuesdays every week and that will make my life a lot easier. Um, that's been a really interesting discussion today. I, I hope you found it interesting and helpful. Please share this podcast with your colleagues and subscribe to future episodes. And I'll be back next month with our next episode. Thank you.